You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. In part one of this episode of The Lodestar podcast, we'll be hearing about the latest M&A activity, what's happening at ports and airports in China and what this means for rates and the forthcoming peak season. We'll be shedding light on how rail services between Asia and Europe are being affected by war in Europe. What does this mean for shipping? And we'll be asking just why Lidl has set up a shipping line. I'm joined today by the Lodestar's Gavin Van Maal, Connor Fahin, Secretary General, European Rail Freight Association, TAC Index's Peyton Burnett, and in an exclusive interview in part two of this podcast, we have the Director General of the International Air Cargo Association, Tiaka. It's Glenn Hughes. I don't believe it's the end of globalization. Let's project 20 years in the future. What's going to drive manufacturers to locate factories? Unit cost of production, adequate access to skilled labor resources, adequate access to supply chains, and cost of capital. So I think that going forward, the global economy is going to thrive. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. I'm delighted to welcome back today Lodestar's managing editor, Gavin Van Maal. Hello, Gav. Hello, Mike. Nice to talk to you again, sir. Now, a little dicky bird has told me that you are the current champion of one of the UK's most competitive pub quizzes, and you were defending your crown last night. So I can't possibly start a podcast without knowing the result. Did you pull through? We lost on the tiebreak. I really am ashamed to admit this, but I didn't know the German word for wood. I thought it was baum, but that's tree. And actually, actually, here's a little thing for anyone who might remember him. We lost it to an old uh, contact of ours, Mike, um, Neil Davidson, ex of Drury Shipping Consultants. Well, if Neil Davidson's listening, well done, Neil. Recently <laughs> retired. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I'm glad you're spending your time well, Neil. Yeah, well, he is. He's actually working. Interesting now, just a little plug for him. He's actually working for the Seafarers Mission in Felixstowe, driving the seafarers as they come off the ship and taking them to, normally the place that they want to go is to the nearby Lidl, which is a big Lidl just outside Felixstowe docks. Well, that's a great cause and well done, Neil. And uh, that does bring us rather accidentally on to our first story, which is, of course, about Lidl. Lidl has just followed Amazon, Costco, Home Depot, Ikea, and Walmart into shipping, Gav. But unlike those other retailers, Lidl have done things slightly differently. Rather than using third-party operators, they've chartered their own fleet. They've set up their own shipping line, like uh, Tailwind Shipping, headquartered in Germany. They appointed shipping industry veteran Peter Gronwald as their MD. They've got three vessels of 3.8... 5,000 TEU on charter, one of which is for four years. So, you know, that's a long time. They've also bought 5,500 TEU ship for an undisclosed price, but vessels valued, put it around 100 million. It's built in 2005, so it's probably got another 10 years of service left. But it does mark a, a sort of step change from the ad hoc charters that the other retailers and major shippers you mentioned undertake. Um, it's a private company, so we don't know what their revenues are. We don't know how many TUs they ship, but you know, we'd expect to see these vessels operating, uh, a China Europe stream. If I may say, this is the, I think this is the interesting bit rather than compare it to these other big shippers, the, the sort of setup most reminds me of element city line brand, which was launched last year by the British freight forwarder Unicer. It's the same setup four Panamax size ships. All on long-term charters operating a single service with like minimal ports rotation, Shanghai, which I think we'll be talking about a bit later, Ningbo, Darchan Bay, Tilbury, Shanghai. The owner of Element City bought 30,040 foot for the cargo. They don't do any export traffic. It's just import, empty the containers, put them back on the ship, back to China, repeat. And I think Tailwind probably do the same same thing again. Two or three ports in China, maybe a stop in Vietnam, depending on their sourcing arrangements. And then one port in Germany, probably a smaller one where the berths are like more already available, say like one of Hamburg's inner city terminals or, or Willemshaven. 
right? But if you look at it, vessels that size, you're probably talking two and a half thousand forty foot a week, which is, you know, bang, you've secured 130,040 foot or 260,000 TU of your annual supply chain. So you can see the sort of strategic rationale behind it. Uh, we can see that there are economics there, and, and this is about securing that, that space in these unprecedentedly exactly. disrupted times. It keeps the shelves filled. But let's just talk about those disruptions. Lodestar.com has been covering this constantly. These strict zero tolerance lockdowns of COVID in China. What's this doing to shipping and exports at the moment? Well, it's a really murky picture, to say the least. You've got a lot of people saying there's lots of ships anchored off the coast. There's a lot of, there's a lot of weird information going around. The sort of stuff you might see on Twitter with um, lots of dots of various vessels at the mouth of the Yangtze, you know, um, and it's when you, when you sort of look a bit closer at it, you realize that there are a lot of oil tankers, dredgers, bulkers, fishing vessels. It's all tugs. Tugs. Yeah, exactly. So I have the strange thing that there's probably um, too many people have access to AIS satellite imagery these days. And so there's people sort of jumping to ill-informed assumptions. Look, I mean, it looks pretty awful for the millions of residents there. Our understanding is that the ports and airports are still operating. Maersk issued a advisory confirming that the, the terminals are all working, but the issue, and they mentioned this, you know, the issue is lack of labor in warehouses. Again, that's partial. Some are operating, some aren't, but the real problem is the truck drivers who are all stuck in their homes. So whether the ports are operating or not is almost immaterial. If the cargo can't get there, we ran a story this week. Uh, talking about said the load factors out of Pudong, you know, obviously a lot of cargo trucks to the airport were down 49% compared to an average of 92% between January and March. They're literally flying half empty. Presumably the vessels are in the same place. So this is a case of not so much demand declining, but the cargo simply not being available. So what happens later? I think we'll come back to that a little bit, but in the meantime, uh, Gav, we're going to hear a bit more on that air cargo element of, of this, these lockdowns, particularly in Shanghai. And I, I'd like to bring in a good friend of ours, Peyton Burnett, who's the managing director of TAC Index. Hello, Peyton. Hi, my Peyton, uh, I know you've got a, a long-standing broking background and you're regularly speaking to senior carrier executives in Hong Kong and China as these lockdowns have been hitting air cargo that we've been discussing earlier in this podcast, particularly in Shanghai. What are you hearing about how this is affecting markets and capacity? Sure, it's, it's, it's really affecting operations, both with the forwarders and airlines, particularly as you're having this rolling COVID lockdowns across the various Chinese provinces. It's really impacting the component supply chains. Now, they do have special passes for the big companies uh, like Tesla and Apple, which is fine. But there are still smaller companies who produce smaller components that are still required to manufacture the product. And that's where you're seeing a bit of a breakdown in the supply chain there, which is therefore affecting volumes because you can't manufacture products so much. So I, I would say the Chinese government authorities are aware of this and are looking to solve this. But if it's not solved within a couple of weeks or months, then, then it's this has serious implications for the global market as a whole. But I, I think they're well aware of these problems and they're trying to solve it now. Yeah, well, it's hard to know where those policies are going. And I think we've, we'll, we've been discussing that on the ocean freight side as well. But on those TAC index rates out of China, particularly on those key lanes to Europe and North America, what are you seeing? It's twofold, particularly to Europe, where we've had this uh, capacity essentially taken out of the market with the Russian carriers and the likes. One might expect that to have a, let's say, a, a more positive impact on the pricing, but as a whole, volumes are down, manufacturing volumes are down. Just to give you an idea of what's happening, a lot of the factory workers are now what they call enclosed loop operations, where they're actually sort of living in the factory to try and keep operations going. But again, going back to before, whilst that's okay for the big 
uh, manufacturers, they're still having problems bringing in these uh, smaller components to keep volumes up trading. Generally, the trends across the market, the pricings are going down. But what I can say is that as volumes are, are going down, it, it can make a little bit more noise in our indices that we publish. And so you just have to, you know, rather going on week by week, maybe take a four-week rolling average to get an idea where the, where the trends are going. But it is an issue, particularly out of Shanghai, particularly out of Hong Kong at the moment, due to these COVID restrictions. Obviously, we've got this lower demand essentially out of China due to this, all these COVID disruptions. Going back seven or so weeks to, the, to late February, we've, the war started in Ukraine. And we're all worried about where the, you know, how that would be disrupting airspace and the lack of capacity that was taken up, particularly with Russian freighters taken out of the market. I'm going to be talking about the geopolitical implications of this awful war with Glenn Hughes, Director General of the International Air Cargo Association, Tiaka, a bit later. But Peyton, how is that war and that loss of capacity marrying up, I guess, or, or acting as a counterpoint to what's going on with China, which is disrupting this cargo get into the airports? Well, as you said, I think there's just been a general, I think it wasn't reported as much how big a problem this zero COVID policy of China has been over the course of this year. And even though obviously Ukraine happened, and I, I, think, I think the market as a whole this year was looking, oh, things should go back to normal and it will stabilize again. And, and you've got both these factors with China's zero COVID policy and this war in Ukraine is just making the outlook very uncertain for the following year. But presumably that loss of capacity because of what's happening in Europe would be felt a bit more keenly once the strict COVID policies out of China are, are loosened perhaps and more cargo makes it to airports. I would say so. I think it was a lot of the, what they call the express boys, one would have expected them to be more keenly felt the impact of that capacity coming off the market. But as I said, due to low volumes, again, again the express guys have, have issues in so far at origin is still difficult to pick up your, your express packages because you can't access the shipper. So, so at the moment, it's not such a problem if this COVID issue sort of goes away or gets resolved. Then again, uh, again, you do have that big capacity that's come off the Asia Europe market. So it should impact it. Peyton Burnett, thank you for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers, Mike. So, Gav, as we were just hearing uh, from Peyton there, that air, air cargo rates have, have softened due to this lack of cargo. As, as you were saying earlier, this has happened on the shipping side as well. The cargo simply can't get to the ports, the airports. Do you see any signs that China might maybe be moving away from battling COVID in this way? I mean, they've got to protect their economy and, and go global trade also a little better, haven't they? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Interesting, I think our experience as a society here in the UK and, and, and elsewhere in Europe, particularly in the West, if you like, of recovering from COVID economic is largely centered around vaccines. China's hasn't, no, China's has been a zero COVID strategy. And our experience of it is that it takes quite a long time for these vaccine rollouts because, well, one, you've got to vaccinate uh, a large percentage of population, given how big China's population, that's a very, very, that's a big effort. Two, you've got to allow for an amount of time before you can apply the second vaccine and then another period of time before you apply the booster. And we all found this out, you know, that's why we went for these various stages of social restrictions being relaxed. So short term, I, I don't see how they can change strategy. It just doesn't seem to be possible to me. I, I think to what degree are you willing to sacrifice the economy and China's role in global trade versus the politics of people dying and COVID spreading? And that's like, that's something that will... President Xi's got a big decision there to make, and or or do you get more vaccines in? I mean, it's a really it's a really complex problem. But China's gone down this road, and there will be global trade implications, which is obviously our main focus. But yeah. if I just might bring you back there, Gav, container market pricing, which we get from our exclusive provider Zenita, we've been seeing 
the spot rates from Shanghai have, have been dropping off uh, or out of Asia in general markedly in recent weeks. Yeah, I mean, have they... There was always going to be some correction, wasn't there? I mean, they, they're coming off a very high level. I mean, here we are in the last week of April, the latest Zenita XS, XSI reading I've got in front of me here shows a 4% decline for the uh, Asian North European leg. I mean, that's down, but that, I mean, that's still down to $10,849 a TU. I mean, these are rates that, that, that importers in Europe never predicated their business models on, are they? So I would um, refer to Lars Jensen, we all know very well, who uh, said the other day that you'd probably baseline assumption was that rates would, would slide for around 5% before starting to pick up again as we head towards more peak season. There are more blank sailings. And what we have learned over the last couple of years is the carriers, they know now how to use the blank sailings as a tool to maintain rate levels. So I would expect them to decline. I think most people expect them to decline, not by very much. This is more of like a market correction than the sort of steep off a cliff things that we've, we've seen in years past. I, as you mentioned, yeah, Lars Jensen for Vespucci Maritimes, Lars Jensen, one of the best analysts and shipping analysts out there. So, I mean, we are at historical highs, even though the rates have come down a little bit, but that peak season, what's your view on what's going to happen? I mean, do we have all these cargo backlogs because of what's happening in China? I mean, I know we're going to see a lot more ships into the East coast. They're all, they've already sailed, but what happens in August, September, is there a possibility of a late peak season instead of an early one, which we'd all been predicting? I would counter that with a rhetorical question. Is there such a thing as a peak season anymore? I mean, in the last two years, we haven't really had, it's been one continual peak season. So it begs the question whether it actually even makes sense talking of the peak season. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, and it all come back to would Little be chartering ships or setting up a shipping line if they thought rates were going to come right back down or there was going to be any market correction. Exactly. But I guess we'll, we'll see it. But I just want to look at that Asia-Europe trade because has been, there's been a big change there for the shipping side and for the air cargo side. And part of that is because a lot of a lot of rail traffic has lost its route into Europe because of war in Ukraine, which is a great moment to bring in Connor Fayen, who's the uh, Secretary General of the European Rail Freight Association. Hello, Connor, and welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. We've just been talking about the impact of war and these COVID lockdowns, and, and I wanted to speak to you particularly about the Asia-Europe trade. So we'll come back to the war shortly, but firstly, for our listeners, can you give us some context or perspective on just how successful the Asia-Europe rail cargo operation has been for the various operators involved in it these past five or 10 years and, and what have been the key ingredients in this sort of new Silk Road success? Yeah, no problem. So if you look at the grander scheme, it's been quite a new development and was quite niche, I would say, up until maybe five years ago. But in that period now, we've started to see some quite significant growth. The figures were 1.2 million containers of December 2021. So this is pre-war, the, the latest figures we had. And at that moment in time, they, they were expected to grow to 1.5 million containers by 2025. So in the space of three years, we were anticipating 25% growth in the figures. So it was growing at quite a high rate and it was anticipated to continue to grow at a high rate. Uh, the reason for this as well is it was being seen as an alternative to the, the crunch we're seeing in deep sea traffic. So a lot of freight forwarders that were struggling to, let's say, get spots and containers, ships, they were looking at rail as an alternative. And also it's becoming much more cost competitive because as we all know, the rates on deep sea had grown significantly over the last two years. So I think pre-war, uh, I think people were beginning to see a lot of growth potential there. Uh, the main discussion was actually that the European side was the barrier to that growth and that there was huge amounts of capacity available on China and the Russia side, but basically it was hitting the wall of Europe where the capacity was not there. So interestingly, the end of last year, we were really talking about Europe as the problem. And obviously that has evolved significantly since then. And 1.2 million to a year. I mean, that is quite significant on that Asia-Europe trade. 
for our listeners, uh, obviously, you know, the largest container ships on that trade are only taking 20,000 TU. So, I mean, we can come back to what that means for shipping where there's already a lot of delays. But let's just reset slightly. 24th of February, Russia invades Ukraine. How has that affected this Asia-Europe route in terms of operations? Have we seen more, more cargo being shipped onto other routes, for example, or, or air or sea? The northern routes, it's almost non-existent anymore, basically. There's sanctions against dealing with RZD, the Russian incumbent operator. There's also, same as deep sea, a lot of carriers just don't want to touch Russian goods. Uh, for fear that new sanctions will be introduced during transit. So business relations with Russian companies has effectively collapsed. There is still some flows, let's say, on non-sanctioned goods, for instance, and also some food and humanitarian transportation, but it's extremely uh, limited. So we are, we're not really seeing freight flows going that route anymore. People are more looking at the middle corridor. So this is Turkey, Azerbaijan, over the Caspian Sea. But this takes longer and the capacity it just is not there. Like I said, we had 1.2 million containers going through the northern route. The middle route, you're talking probably around 200,000 at the current moment in time. And that middle route through, that is that Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and then into Turkey, is that how it goes? Yeah. And so is there more capacity to grow that if, if this northern route is closed? It's definitely being looked at now. It's been somewhat neglected, I would say, over the past years because the focus was on the northern route. But I think now there's a much more political initiative on the middle corridor. I think we have to accept it is more complex. It's much more intermodal in nature. Um, obviously, yeah, we can't go south of the Caspian Sea either because there's sanctions with Iran as well. So it means crossing the Caspian Sea. So you need to go on to maritime at some stage and then back onto rail again. Uh, so we need to ensure that the terminals are operating well in the Caspian Sea, that there's good sea connections. So we're introducing complexity. Uh, there's also the question of the cost. Uh, we have a lot more countries we have to travel through. A lot of these countries will have transit tariffs in place. So let's say just a pure customs formalities as well. This becomes more significant as well. So there is more barriers there. There probably is growth potential up to 1.2 million TU like we had in the Northern Corridor. Probably doubtful. So looking forward, Connor, uh, let's just say, for example, we have peace this time next year. And, and I guess no sanctions because that's, that's stymied the Europe Russia trade as well as the Asia Europe northern route trade. Let, let's say there's no sanctions either. And on that Asia to Europe corridor, would you envisage that, you know, this business might return to something that looks a little bit normal? Or, or is this really killed faith in people who've invested a lot of time and effort in, in this route? Maybe they don't see a medium term future even. Yeah, I think it's optimistic. I think to presume we could be back to normal next year. I think even if the war ceases and we still have the regime in place. There's still questions about, is the rule of law intact here? For instance, a lot of companies will be looking at what happened in the aviation sector, and that would have been quite worrying where we've seen leased aircrafts being seized by the state. So it might take a while before companies are really willing to let their rolling stock tr transit through Russia, for instance. And also, to, yeah, I think... It all depends what we see in the maritime side as well. If the maritime side really begins to start functioning again, maybe then we see shippers and forwarders saying, well, actually, we have a functioning maritime uh, corridor. Uh, we're not as interested in the land corridor anymore. So the next year, we probably still wouldn't expect anything looking like a return to normal. But in the same time, I think it's probably an opportunity, perhaps, because that transit flows are not there right now. Uh, we know we had the European problem at the beginning. Once you cross the Polish border, the capacity was not there. Maybe it's an opportunity to get that infrastructure into place. Because I think in the, let's say the longer term, we can probably anticipate there will be some sort of return to normal eventually. And when that does come, we can make sure that the infrastructure is there. So you're taking the view that, okay, eventually something will be resolved. We just don't know when. Yeah. And that there has been people saying that this is like the end of globalization or globalized supply chains as, we, as we've known them. But you, you're thinking, no, this will come back eventually. I think 
even if there is an end to globalized supply chains, I, I don't want to say an end, but there will be, will we ever have the level of globalization we had in the past? And I wouldn't be too anxious there as of the rail freight sector, because it had never been a heavily globalized means of transportation in the first place. It had mostly been more regional focused. And even if we look at the share of rail freight, let's say looking at the China European market, 1.2 million TEUs, but the maritime was 95 million TEUs. So it was quite a small share of that anyway. And you know, if anything, you could say there's a market in rail freight for just connecting Western China with Europe. Uh, but it was always going to be a bit of a smaller player. But I think there will always be a demand for some sort of transportation. Will it be at the 100 million TEUs like we see today? That That's another question. Connor Fain, thanks for your thoughts today and thanks for coming on the Lodestar podcast. No problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. Gav, finally, um, before I interview Glenn Hughes at Tiarka in part two of this podcast, there's been... I was going to say a few big deals, but there's actually been a lot of big deals, even since the, the last news magazine podcast that we did, when we looked at some of what the lines have been buying in Africa, MSE, Ballore, et cetera. Can you just run us through some of the big new M&A deals the last few weeks? Yeah, it's been busy. It's been busy. And in fact, there's been, I, I mean, I'm going to miss stuff off the list here because particularly over in the States, it's been busy. The one that came out as was you've got the, what we call a pure plate contract logistics sector, which is dominated by GXO Logistics, the spun off contract logistics operations of XPO Logistics. And XPO Logistics, of course, was a very famous M&A player over the last decade. It initially appeared to us that, that GXO wasn't going to follow down that M&A route, that it was going to focus on building out its warehouse network and building out particularly a lot of investment in cutting edge tech, whether it was robotics, AI, all the sorts of stuff that make warehouses run well and crucially mean you don't have to employ as much labor. That said, they're set now to acquire Clipper Logistics, which is another pure plate contract logistics operator here in the UK for around about a billion quid, not dollars. It's a bolt-on deal. It's not transformative. It'll give GXO access to the life sciences and healthcare market. It'll add more e-commerce clients to its customer list, and it will give it a presence in Poland and Germany. It's really a, a risk diversification. Slightly more interesting, um, to my mind, is Singapore terminal operator PSA, which has clearly embarked on its own vertical integration strategy without the fanfare that, that Maersk or DP World have accompanied theirs. Uh, so two deals that they've just clear, uh, just um, completed. It acquired the second box terminal in Halifax, thus making the Canadian East Coast port a PSA-only hub when it comes to container traffic. And certainly there is potential to to turn it into a sort of perhaps even a transshipment hub for Asia, US, East Coast services that transit Suez. And to my mind, it was interesting that the deal wasn't blocked by Canada's competition regulators. I mean, they certainly looked at it because I saw the documentation where they requested all the details on the deal, but evidently they decided that there was enough interport as opposed to intraport competition with Montreal. Second deal, PSA concluded its buy of Philadelphia-based freight forwarder BDP International, which raises the sort of um, intriguing prospect of PSA becoming a customer of its own shipping line clients, which could make some fascinating three-dimensional negotiations along the lines of BDP gets carrier guarantees of X space on certain Asian, North American, East Coast, or transatlantic services at X rate, while PSA offers a certain amount of terminal services in Asia, Europe, and North America at X handling rates. So, you know, a bit like a game of three-dimensional chess with, with client, ship, forwarder, shipping line, terminal operator, but the two of those are owned by the same company. And then also it's probably worth mentioning, Mike, and I think you've mentioned it before that, you know, the MSC's purchase of Bollore Africa Logistics closed. It's the biggest takeover in logistics ever, as far as we can work out. Six billion plus, bigger than DP Wells' purchase of P&O Ports or DHL's XL. 
Yeah, huge deal, a huge deal. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about some of those deals. We've got these first quarter results that are all coming out in the next couple of weeks uh, as we hit late April, May. Are we expecting any shocks? And I asked that noting that we've seen a lot of container line and forwarder stocks, 3PL stocks, especially in Europe. They've been shedding quite a lot of value. Look, a lot of stocks in our sector, whether they're forwarders, shipping lines, trucking firms, they've been under a cosh for a few weeks now in terms of their share prices. Um, and as far as logistics share prices go, last year they were on steroids, as my editor Lodestar Premium likes to refer to it. And and it looks like we're we're in a withdrawal phase now. Um, and there's there's lots of reasons, right? There's war, there's inflation, there's there's huge worries about uh, consumer confidence as a result of those first two factors. There's uncertainty, almost an existential uncertainty over the future of globalization. And those stocks that soared highest have the farthest to fall. And that, and that, that includes DSB. Look, the DSB is reporting next week. Every source that we speak to expects that they're going to report a great set of numbers. But these numbers are, are they're the numbers for the first three months of this year, you know, and that's not all that investors look for. So it's the prognosis for what happens the rest of the year. And I think this has probably been a recurrent theme of, of this week and, and previous week's podcast, Mike, that the future is, it's mired in, uh, you can't see the future and it's, it, you've never been less able to see the future than now it is. There are also, I should add, there are also questions about the share buyback strategy DSV has done. And there, there are always questions about buyback programs. And Gav, one of the key parts of that analysis was what would need to happen for DSV, which is renowned for its aggressive uh, M&A activity. What would need to happen for it to become a target itself? DSV still has a strong share price, right? It's uh, it's 1,150 Danish kroner today. It was 770 when it bought Panel Pino. And a premium, we did a bit of modeling on what level it would have to fall to to make it a takeover target for some hungry private equity investors. And we settled on around 570 per share. So it would need to shed at least half its current value for it even to become a faint possibility of it becoming a target itself. I should add that analysis, all of that modeling has been done by Ali Pacetti, not myself. And you can check out Ali Pacetti's analysis of DSV and many other stocks on Lodestar Premium. And uh, I'd urge you to do so. Uh, he might not have a crystal ball, but uh, he's not far off. In part two of this podcast, I'll be speaking to Glyn Hughes of Tiaka. But in the meantime, Gavin Amal, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Very welcome, Mike. Thank you ever so much for having me been a pleasure. Welcome to part two of this Lodestar podcast, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome a man many of you will know. He has been a, a constant bright spark in air freight for almost four decades, and he's the current director general of Tiaka, also known as the International Air Cargo Association. Previous to that, he managed to give IATA a voice in air freight in his capacity as global head of cargo from 2014 until 2021. Glyn Hughes, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. And, you know, it's the most stressful time the industry has gone through in years. And congratulations to you. I listen to your podcasts as often as I can. And you're always hitting some great, great questions, great speakers. So thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, well, that's very kind, Glenn. That's very kind. I've caught something that you put out, actually, on social media that really caught my eye. And I'm not so much looking at the actual data that you posted, but it's just sort of this comparison. So you posted on, I think it's on LinkedIn, that the value of tourism was $0.3 trillion at the end of 2021, which, as you point out, was a very strange year. Trade carried by planes, by contrast, was worth $7.4 trillion. Now. Not sure where those numbers come from, but were you trying to make a point about this industry that air cargo is is sort of undervalued economically and maybe perception should be changed now? Its importance has become so obvious during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and a great place to start because it isn't just 
facts that have changed during COVID. If we look at pre-COVID time, so for example, 2019, the value of inbound tourism was $850 billion versus the value of trade exported by planes was 6.4 trillion. So it was eight times as valuable. So the value to the national economy derived from air cargo exports is huge. And it's a critical component of the global economy. So the question is, well, why is air cargo always kind of flown under the radar then? And I think it's, it's really quite a complex answer in the sense that during COVID, people saw the value of what was being moved because it impacted them personally and visibly. They knew the PPE, they knew the vaccines, they knew the e-commerce stuff that they needed had to come by plane because there was no other choice. There was no other alternative. But if you look at the economics of commercial aviation, airports make more money from passenger flights. Airlines make more money from passenger flights. Regulators in terms of air navigation service providers make more money from passenger flights. The ground handling community makes more money from passenger flights. The only entity that really benefits more from the air cargo component is the governments themselves, is the countries. And, and this is really where we need to take this message that the value to a country's economic prosperity is significantly heightened by having a good, robust air cargo infrastructure. And I think that's one of the important facts or one of the important tasks that Tiaka has to play going forward is to speak on behalf of the entire community so that governments are aware of this, not just about the life-saving aspects, but about the financial and commercial and, and economic aspects that air cargo brings as an integrated component of global trade. We'll come back to perceptions, both of the industry and also of Tiaka a little bit later, if that's okay. We can just focus on what's been happening during this pandemic when passenger capacity was grounded and the business of air cargo enjoyed these unprecedented rates and returns. You referenced there, essentially, the cargo's been a second-class citizen. Does all of this change because of the pandemic or will, when the passenger capacity inevitably returns and focuses reshift, back to that industry and maybe when shipping rates fall, does air cargo lose its attractiveness, maybe for investors, but just maybe in terms of how it's viewed? Again, another great question. I, I don't think it's been sort of a second class citizen. I just think that it's been getting on with the job. It hasn't really been waving the flag. It's just been for 111 years or whatever this industry, however old this industry is, it's just been getting stuck in. And that's what it did during the COVID crisis as well. I mean, if you look at the early part when nobody in the world knew that we were what we were really dealing with, most of us just knew we had to shelter at home and, and take care. Yet the air cargo industry and the logistics industry in general were on the front line, moving stuff around the world, putting themselves at risk because that's what they do. They just get on with the job. So I think when we look at, well, what happens post COVID, I think there's going to be some structural changes in the sense that pre COVID air cargo moved roughly 50% in the bellies of passenger aircraft and 50% in freighters. Well, what's happened over the last few years is there's been a huge shift away from the bellies, of course, because they've been grounded and the freighters have been supplemented with passenger flights operating as, as freighters and air cargo has grown. So the latest IATA forecast is that the passenger volumes and global connectivity for passenger networks will return to 2019 levels by 2025. But air cargo volumes in 2025 will not be at 2019 levels. They'll probably be 25, 30% higher than they were in 2019, which means the networks of 2019 won't be sufficient. So there will be a continued reliance on the freighter networks that have been developed, which is why we're seeing a number of carriers who are actually saying that they need to rebalance their fleet as well. So some carriers who previously didn't have a freighter arm are now starting to convert some of their passenger aircraft into freighters. There is a, an increase in production freighters that have been ordered. We have some exciting new, you know, 777-8s coming forward and, and the A350F program, et cetera. So over the next sort of five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a continuing, I don't say shift, but I think that reliance on freighter networks will, will probably now be structurally in place for a considerable time going forward because the volumes of air cargo will be at ever high levels. Okay, there's a couple of points that you mentioned there. I mean, one, I think, was the assertion that that air cargo supply chain has delivered over the last two years when we've had all of this disruption and when and when a lot of sectors needed PPE urgently, that, so that this industry has delivered. But I would think the, the counterpoint to that would be, okay, but we were paying too much 
and it still takes too long. Is the low hanging fruits in terms of improvement that, that you've identified? Again, that's a, you know, that's a really great question because yes, I would say that this industry has performed incredibly well during very adverse and very difficult, challenging situations and circumstances, despite the fact that the, let's take the five years prior to COVID, this industry was underinvested. You know, we had a situation because of the, basically the stagnation in the global economy, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, even 2016 as well. There was tensions between US and China. There was tensions between the US and the EU, tensions between the EU and China, several economies, Brazil, Latin America in general, even Japan and parts of Asia were not flourishing which meant that demand for air cargo during those times was, was pretty flat. So the industry had plenty of capacity to move the cargo around, had plenty of facility space, didn't really have any restrictions on manpower because the employment situation was such that there was free movement of people around the planet, et cetera. There was, you know, no real border restrictions, artificial restrictions, such as Brexit and other things that have happened since. So that the industry really didn't invest adequately in improving of the service. That changed. And I think that's con continuing with continuing to see a lot more investment in automation, in technology, because in order to cater for these increased volumes going forward with the same space that we had before in the facilities, with the same limited access that we have to some of the major gateways around the world. And in some cases with the, the lack of truck drivers and the lack of, um, road rail, um, interconnectivity, for example, the industry is going to have to be more efficient. Else we're going to start to see cargo piling up on tarmacs and other things, which we saw during COVID when there was restrictions of getting people to the airport to, to move that cargo through. So the industry has to continue this pace of innovation and, and uh, investment. You mentioned a few things in there as well about, well, you referenced, I guess, what we could call them as uh, changes in the geopolitical landscape, particularly over recent months, we've got war in Ukraine. We've still got these strict COVID lockdowns in China. How is this sort of, people have called it the end of globalization, essentially what happens from here on in. How does that affect how you view this industry? Well, first of all, I have to say, I don't believe it's the end of globalization. I think this, if, if we take a, a 20 year view, let's project 20 years in the future, what's going to drive manufacturers to locate factories, unit cost of production, adequate access to skilled labor resources, adequate access to supply chains and cost of capital. So I think that going forward, the global economy is going to thrive. What's going through now though, are disruptive influences, which require some quite sophisticated things to overcome. You know, if you look at Hong Kong, Hong Kong, um, and, and what's really fascinating is Hong Kong international airport set a new record last year, despite if anybody would say, what's Hong Kong like, we'd say, oh, it's a mess. You've got quarantine on pilots. Cafes had to reposition crews. Then there was restrictions and, and this, that, and the other, you can't get truckers over from the mainland. And yet it still put through record volumes of cargo despite that, because people were innovative. So carriers were saying, well, let's base crews in Incheon, for example, so they can do that, that hot Incheon, Hong Kong, Incheon. And actually that way they don't have to base crews in Hong Kong itself. It did lengthen and make the supply chain slightly more complex, but it was a way of getting the cargo out. What we've seen now in China with last month when we had Shenzhen closed for a week, that was kind of tough in itself, but nothing compared to what's going on in Shanghai right now. I think it's now entering its third week of complete lockdown. It's not lockdown as we knew it. I mean, this is really serious lockdown when you have factories closing, people aren't able to go out. The factories, the production in the factories, you know, the back orders were getting quite severe. I understand now there has been a limited reopening of some production sites in what they're calling like a bubble environment. So it's a very close knit, almost a team approach, which is what some operators were doing in terms of aircraft crews to get through the COVID situation. So as long as the team was safe, the team stayed intact, but we were then seeing cargo shifting to Jeju and, and Hongzhou and, and other places. And, you know, they're all getting quite heavily backlogged now as well. So, you know, in terms of the question, do I see this, the end of globalization? Absolutely not. Do I see this as another challenge the industry has to overcome? Absolutely. We hope the situation in Shanghai will open over the next few weeks, um, just by the virtue of the fact this severe type of lockdown, in some cases you could argue doesn't actually, it's not a firebreak. It doesn't stop the spread because if you have households 
Now I know there's the, the camps where people go away if they're tested positive, et cetera, but there is still a rolling effect of when you have, um, cases that are expanding as much as they are and, and case numbers are still being, as it were, I wouldn't say record levels, but they're still coming through as quite a high number of positive cases. But we hope that the government can relax certainly some of the restrictions to allow some of the operations to commence, whether or not it's at the ports or the airports, et cetera. Some of these um, disruptions that you mentioned that obviously they impact right across the mode, but what are the upshots of all of this? Obviously it adds demand to, for air cargo when there's disruptions at, uh, on the oceans, of course, and that keeps rates high and probably is, is a factor when you say that supply won't get back to 2019 levels until 2023, but we might see balance in 2025. But one of the, the downsides of this for the global economy is we've got, we get these high inflation rates. Now you've said in the past that higher interest rates that of course governments use to combat the inflation could actually be beneficial for the air cargo market. Can you explain why that is to our listeners? Yeah. I mean, there's two aspects of that, which again is looking at the broader global economic perspective in the sense that if you are a manufacturer and a producer and you've got a million dollars worth of stock putting on a ship for 70 days, if you've had to actually finance that stock, or if you've actually, you know, as it were, you've got consignee selling or, or you've actually had orders that people have prepaid and they want their goods as quickly as possible. Whilst people are having to finance their supply chains, the, the assets within the supply chains, i.e. the commodities, that is a huge amount of capital that's being tied up and the costs, particularly at high interest rates, uh, means that that is now a devalued asset. So if you've got a million dollars worth of stock on the ship for two months, I'm going to take a very extreme example here. The value when you sell that, when you've taken into account financing costs, has taken quite a big hit. Now, over the past few years, we've had almost zero interest rates, which means that that has not been a factor. But as it becomes a factor and we're seeing inflation levels, I think, you know, it's about six or 7% in many of the developed markets. And I saw even in some places like, you know, forecasting eight or 9%. Now, of course, that will promote increases in wage costs. So production costs will go up. So when production costs are going up, people obviously want to, uh, able to get the realization of value of their assets quicker. They don't want it tied up on ships. So getting that product to market quicker, which is therefore a cargo's value proposition can actually then benefit from those situations of high interest rates. The counterbalance is though, of course, high interest rates, high inflation means that the consumer spending, the consumer dollar may actually take a pounding. You know, if they're having to spend more on, on, as it were, utility bills, we know heating and energy costs are going to go up in Europe, particularly if there's decisions that are taken to switch off, for example, Russian sourced gas, for example, uh, the price of filling your car has gone up. So these are taking hits as well. So it could mean that during periods of, of high inflation, that the consumer is actually redirecting some of its discretionary spend, which would have perhaps gone on products that come via air cargo, such as smartphones and other products, et cetera, into paying for utilities. So again, it's just more periods of uncertainty, but what we're saying is it's not a one-way street. It's not a, a, a clear linear position to say, ah, during times of high inflation, air cargo moves to ocean because consumers are, some of it will move that way. Others will want to accelerate the return on the goods. So if I was doing a low star headline, then it would be Glenn Hughes says less inventory, more air freight, solve your supply chain problems. Well, I mean, but you know, joking aside, if you look and I, and I do that, that very low level research when I'm in the U S which is, I just go into every department store that I'm, I'm given a list by my kids of stuff I have to buy. So whilst I'm going to buy the stuff for them, I'm doing research, which is just looking at the levels of stock, almost every single store you go into from the dollar store up to the high-end clothing outlets, uh, they've got a huge percentage of empty shelves, empty racks, and empty space. And you ask the question, why is the space empty? They say, because we cannot get access to the goods, the supply chains, the, the pre-orders, some of the electrical stores, the, the empty shelves. And they say, well, they, they sell the stuff on so much on back order. It never makes it out. As soon as it comes in, it's sold already. It's pre-sold. So, you know, even if the consumer did stop spending, the backlog of inventory will still be positive for air cargo for a period of time there afterwards. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, this is something that we get told that again and again. I mean, but it's whether you're in your local shop or you're interviewing someone in China, but you still hear the same story that you've just relayed. Now I said, we would come back to perceptions if I may, and I want to talk about what your 
doing it, Tiarka, under your leadership. And Alex Lenane came up with one of those headlines exactly from your executive summit in San Francisco in March, which made me both uh, think and, and laugh a little. Uh, and she wrote this. If you thought Tiarka was just a bunch of old men high on Viagra and politicking to favor their own careers, you need to think again. Now, her, her point was that you've infused Tiarka with new people, new ideas, and you're making real progress. Member numbers bounce back in 2021. Has all of these things that we've been talking about and how COVID has almost helped Air Cargo and Tiarka itself perhaps find some new gears. Is that what you think? And, and how are you planning to take advantage of, of this fair wind, I suppose we could say? Yeah, I mean, that, that's again, another good question. And Alex, I love her style of writing. And I think she was also referring, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but we had a, a hack on our website, which meant that you go onto tiaka.org and you were redirected to an online pharmacy selling male potency pills. Oh, I did see that. Yes, classic. I forgot that. So she weaved that in nicely to, to the headline, but I understand that the, the point. And, and I think, you know, the key point is she's saying is if you thought we were a dusty old organization, take another look. And I think that's a very fair comment because, and, and I have to be honest, this is part of the reason why I, I was happy to, to be asked to join the organization because over, over the course of the two years prior to me joining, the board decided it, it wanted to reposition and transform itself as an organization. Historically, Tiaka was known as the body that really ran the air cargo forum. And that was really its big key raison d'etre. But during the, the pre-COVID and in fact, particularly evident during COVID was the fact that as a global association, which has members drawn from every sector of the supply chain, airports, ground handlers, airlines, forwarders, trucking companies, shippers, you know, ULD technology providers, ULD manufacturers, I mean, you know, organizations across the entire supply chain. It was critical to use the value of that collective voice in a time when everybody talks about this industry needing to collaborate more. So we had a trade association that was built on collaboration across the supply chain. So the board had a great vision to say, well, let's be more than just an air cargo forum, more than just a trade show. Let's come up with some position papers. Let's look at what the membership needs. And then it really transformed itself into a very agile, dynamic very compressed. So in other words, the distance between, as it were, the broad membership and the chairman and the director general and the board is very close. You know, we're always engaged with the entire membership. Part of why we want to do more outreach is so that we can get the views of the association much more. And then we can actually translate that into meaningful positions for the issues of today, not looking at, well, in 25 years time, we need the following things. You can't always focus on 25 years time. You need to focus on tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, five years, 10 years. You've got to have that full array of um, programs in place. And I think that during the COVID situation, the Tiaka voice has been quite well received by governments. We work closely with the COVAX facility. We work closely with a lot of partner organizations like Pharma.Aero, Afra, Alta, ACI, for example, at the airport council international, looking at the issues that they've got, because we see that this industry is a, it's an ecosystem. It's, you know, no one component of this entire supply chain can actually operate in isolation without reliance and full support and integration from others. So I think going forward, that's kind of what the role we want to play as Tiaka is to be one of the voices on the global stage that can represent the true value and benefits of air cargo. In terms of that ecosystem, one of the other points that Alex more seriously made in a column was that at San Francisco, there was a lack of forwarders and shippers, she felt. And even at your own conferences, I've heard this criticism of, of the air cargo industry in general, that it's not customer facing a little. Is this part of what you see as your remit to try and change those perceptions or to change that focus? Absolutely. I think, again, it's a great question because historically we would look at this this organization and this industry, and I'm going back, let's say three, four, five years, and to say that those interaction points were on the commercial terms. I'm going to talk to you about your commitment to me and my price to you, or your service quality to me and my price to you. And those then tend to be, I wouldn't say confrontational, but they are not necessarily about collaborative moving the industry forward. And that's why you saw in a lot of industry events that you would have groups and pockets. So you go to one event, which would be a lot of shippers, because they then talk about their issues. You go to another event, you see a lot of airlines, a lot of ground handlers, a lot of freight forwarders, 
and combinations of that, which are then looking at their particular buckets. What we want to try and create is an event or a, an environment platform where all parties can come together and actually then reflect the challenges that this industry faces on a collaborative type of air share because we all care type of approach. And that's something that we, we want to reach out more to. And, and I mentioned a couple of them already. ACI, Airport Council International, for example, we work very closely with them because they represent, must be nearly 2,000 airports around the world who have certain types of issues. Obviously, we work closely with IATA. We work closely with FIATA, representing the airlines and the freight forwarders. ASA, Airport Services Association. So we work closely with those. We have the European Shippers Council on our board. Um, we want to work more closely as well with global shippers and with shipper representative groups so that we can then try and get that dialogue much more collaborative about the challenges that the industry faces, because we all face the same challenges and the result of which puts pressure on the supply chain. And that's really, yes, part of the role that we want to play going forward is then to kind of create this much more inclusive environment at, at the events as we go forward. I'm just looking at those events, Glenn. You've got some regional summits coming up, including Amsterdam in June. These events are being put together with a, a show and don't tell in quote marks philosophy. Just briefly, what does that mean? What should delegates expect if they turn up? Yeah, again, great question, because one of the things, as I said, we have our, our global air cargo forum every two years. We're going to do the next one in November in Miami. The executive summit, as you mentioned previously, was in San Francisco. We're going to do that every two years. That's global. But our membership is drawn from five continents hundred and something different countries, you know, we've got 500 or nearly 500 members now. So it's important, as I said before, that we have a mechanism so that all members can interact with the organization. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to basically have a lecture tour where we kind of put, just put people on stage who saying, this is what you should do. I've got the tablets of stone and it tells me here, if you do this, you will flourish. No, we actually want to have people on the stage saying, this is the problem I had, and this is what I did to overcome it. It may work for you. It may not work for you. We want to really use our vehicle and our platforms to inspire people to find their own solutions. And I think the same can be said for things like industry standards. When this industry started all those decades ago, you needed industry standards because you needed to move people forward together to get that common base level. But now we're in a much more innovative entrepreneurial environment where I think we actually want to do, and this is part of what we want to do as well, is shine a spotlight on the innovators on those who've pushed the boundaries, those who actually overcame a problem by doing something that had never been done before. And we hope that will then motivate and inspire others to say, wow, well, I'm actually going to top that. And that way we can actually really start to see some leapfrogs forward in terms of how this industry overcomes the challenges that it's going to face. And one of those big challenges, of course, is climate. And Tiaka launched a Blue Sky program, which for our listeners, it's a, a tool to help the industry tracks sustainability progress, and it includes an assessment validation and a, a verification program. How is this progressing and, and why do you think this is important? This comes back as well to where the board said as a strategy, we're a small association. We don't have, as it were, a long history in things like standard setting. IATA has got a tremendous history of looking at what they're doing, for example, on one record, exceptional. What Fiat is doing with their Fiat bill of lading, exceptional. So our role in, in that area, really to add value in those topics is really to support what others are doing. Sustainability was an area which we felt nobody was really doing enough. So we looked at it. We, we've been running, as it were, an annual survey for the last couple of years. Um, very pleased to get some great help from Lodestar to get the message out there. And we had a 60% increase this year of, of survey re respondents versus prior year. That then translates into an industry scorecard. We then produced, as it were, an industry roadmap looking at how this industry can tackle the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 SDGs. What are we doing as an industry that is aligned to that? And we came up with eight core areas of, of objectives and about 30 key actionable items. And for us, sustainability is, is about people, planet, and prosperity. So it's the environmental piece, but it's also about the, the making sure that the team is attract, retain, develop to the next generation of workforce, that we have the right inclusivity programs in place to appeal to the broad sector of society and to make sure that collectively we play our role in helping developing nations, helping create markets and helping bring global prosperity. 
So the Blue Sky program is really about a way for organizations to start with assessing themselves. You know, the first thing is they can download the assessment guidelines and go through the self-assessment process. And then the second tier is where they would actually submit information to us and we would perform a remote verification exercise and give them back a scorecard. And this is the key. Everybody is on the sustainability journey. It's not a pass and fail. It, it is about where you are and where you hope to be. So they'll get their private dashboard back, which will show the areas that they might be role models in, but also it will probably highlight other areas where they perhaps don't have adequate policies or programs in place to address. And we hope then that people will go along that journey. And then every couple of years, we'll come back and do another assessment for them and actually give them a, a report card again to show how they've made progress. And then the third tier, which we'll launch probably next year, is where we would go and do an, a full on-site audit. And then they would get a really detailed, and this is exactly the areas where you can improve, et cetera, et cetera. So we're very excited about this. And uh, I'm sure we'll continue to cover it in the Lodestar as well. Much appreciated, Glenn. Thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.